In and turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. Again, we will be uh, reading uh, this whole chapter, which deals with uh, now Jacob's journey uh, to Egypt and is being re- reunited uh, with Joseph. So, Genesis. Chapter 46, starting in verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him as daughters, and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt." Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Iskar, Tola, Puva, Job, Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jahali. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Aram together with his daughter, Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Ardi, and Arli. The sons of Asher, Amna, Ashva, Ishvi, Beria, and Sarah, their daughter, or their sister. And the sons of Beria, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were Benjamin and Ephraim, whom Ashnath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Becker, Ashbel, Gerer, Ehi, Rosh, Mopim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, 
who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Guni, Jezer, Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob. Seven persons in all. All the persons belonged to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, Father, now for the preaching of your word. We pray that you would be with this, your servant. We pray that you would help us to have ears to hear. We ask, O God, that we may learn and apply your truth into our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the uh, very important themes that is found in the Scriptures is that of kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. He taught in parables. He told, telling His disciples the secrets of the kingdom was to be given to them, but to the others it was given in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The Apostle Paul warned of sins which would result in those not inheriting the kingdom. We are told that we have been called by God, that we will inherit the kingdom. In Christ, you and I have been made worthy of the kingdom. God judges those who afflict His kingdom people. The Greek and Hebrew terms, which are translated for us kingdom, they show up in both the Old and New Testaments. They have a variety of meanings and usages. 
Johannes Voss, in his book, The Kingdom of God and the Church, said that both the Greek and Hebrew words used, like the English word, which correspond, can designate the same concept, but from differing viewpoints. For example, a kingdom may describe something that is abstract, such as kingship, or rule which is exercised by a king. They also may describe something more concrete, such as a place or a territory which is being ruled. A kingdom, then, can be the sum total of the subjects, possessions being ruled, which include whatever rights and privileges and advantages which are being enjoyed. So as Christians, you and I are members of a spiritual kingdom under the headship of and rule of Christ. In the Scriptures, we are called at times a kingdom of priests. Peter refers to believers as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set uh, people for his own possession. Paul says of, of believers in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The point here is that God has taken a people who were rebellious, sinful, members of darkness, headed for destruction, and has made them to be His people, a people which have been set apart for His purposes, a people in His kingdom. Having been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing this, the Lord began with a small amount of people. In an otherwise obscure part of the world, it has made them to be His people. He has set them apart for His redeeming purposes to bring about His plan of redemption. And to put a finer point on this, God started with one. With Abraham, as he was called out of Ur. The people who God has called and blessed and promised great covenant promises had grown, would flourish, and in time would become a large people. A people who will on the last day be a gathering of multitude upon multitudes, numbers which cannot be counted. And that people was a people not because of their ethnicity, but because of faith. A gift from God. And so what we are looking at today in our present text is again the providence of God, which brought forth what is in some respects the seed kernel of that spiritual kingdom. A small group of people, a family of 70 persons with Jacob as the patriarchal head. And bringing them down to Egypt, the Lord was going to grow this chosen kingdom people within the borders of an earthly kingdom 
which would demonstrate that his purposes was not to establish merely another earthly kingdom or nation, but to bring to fruition a spiritual people who would be his own possession. A people who would be used to impact the whole of the world through the gospel. To the offspring, the promised one who would come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has prepared His people to migrate for a season of time out of the land of Canaan, that promised land, into the land of Goshen in Egypt. And he had accomplished this through a variety of circumstances. Uh, we have seen these throughout our study in Genesis. Uh, uh, the slavery and imprisonment of Joseph. And then, and then the, the famine which would come. And the sons of Israel would not return to Canaan and inherit the land for some time to come. Because as God had told Abraham earlier in chapter 15, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God was preserving and governing His people by His hand of providence, bringing about His promises, establishing them as His spiritual kingdom, which would one day become global and universal and complete in the new heavens and new earth. And so, with Jacob's pronouncement, which we looked at last week, at the end of chapter 45, it is enough! Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. With that pronouncement from Jacob, the patriarchal period in Canaan had come to an end. The family was now to relocate to Egypt. And they will remain in Egypt until the Exodus generation when the Lord will lead them out of Egypt through His servant Moses. And so as we turn, return again now to chapter 46 of Genesis, we find Israel heading out on that long journey south, beginning in Hebron in the land of Canaan. And this is about 20 miles northeast of Beersheba. Now Beersheba is where Israel will stop and he will offer sacrifices to the Lord. And really Beersheba is the end of the promised land. This is the the furthest south one can get before you depart from Canaan. And was at one time the principal settlement of Jacob's father, Isaac. Now notice again, in verse 1, the use of the name Israel instead of Jacob. So again, this is, there's national significance to this, the use of this. The narrator has been providing us various clues. The nation was emerging. Jacob is the head of the family, but by calling him Israel, the nation that he leads is in view. The family and the nation of Israel was moving from Canaan to Egypt. So now Beersheba was the place that Jacob had departed from when he went to Haran. This was many years ago, and it was back in chapter 28 in Genesis. He's again departing from the land from this same place. 
as he and his family migrate to Egypt. When Jacob had left Canaan at Beersheba before, this was back in his younger years, the Lord had provided him a dream and promised him safe return. Now Jacob is old. Perhaps he needs the Lord's reassurance again. This was, after all, the land which had been promised to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, and even to himself. Was there perhaps some uncertainty? Should should I really be leaving this land? And so notice that it says that he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now again, this speaks of his spiritual heritage. It's an echo of his earlier sacrifice in chapter 31 where he offered to the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob worshipped the Lord at a place which had been a liturgical site for both Abraham and for Isaac and would be for himself as well. He built an altar in that place. He offered sacrifices. And Jacob confessed once again that he worshipped the same God as his father. And he was seeking assurance from him that God would be with him, that God would be with the covenant family. And so that night it says that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. This is again, this is another theophany. God is coming to Jacob and speaking to him. This uh, terminology used here, the visions of the night, is an allusion back to Abraham and the vision which the Lord had had given him in, in chapter 15. This was actually when, uh, when he was actually himself looking forward to that day when Israel would sojourn out of the land. That they would go to Egypt and eventually return in the fourth generation. And so now Jacob is leaving the land. He's leaving the the, the land that the Lord had promised to him. But the Lord promised that he would be with him. And that the nation which was to come from him will also return to this land. Look at verse 3. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. The Lord reminds Jacob that he is God. That that God is the God of his fathers. That Jacob need not fear going to Egypt. He he need not be worried in the least to go there. This is similar uh, to the, the encouragement which was given to Abraham and to Isaac as the Lord encourages the patriarchs. To them, God had promised numerous offspring as the basis for their not fearing. Remember, uh, for, with Abraham, you know, Abraham was, was quite advanced in years. You know, how, how in the world would children come? And children were promised to him. And, and Isaac as well. But of course, Jacob, you know, Jacob already had numerous offspring. Here the basis of encouragement is not more offspring, but that those offspring would be formed into a great nation, that there would be an expansion of offspring. And the promises being made to Jacob then revolved around the theme of nationhood. 
Not only would there be many children, but those many children would form a great nation. And so the 70 or so who go down to Egypt, who are listed later in the text, will form the nucleus of that promised nation. And so they go, as they go down, they would not go alone. God would be with them. The, the Lord was not sending them away from Himself. He was going with them. He would go before them. He would be close to them. The Lord would guide them and protect them. So Jacob had nothing to worry about. Of course, this did not mean that they would avoid any suffering. The Lord being with them didn't mean that they would not suffer. Far from that, we know that the nation will suffer in Egypt. The Lord's presence in our lives does not mean that you and I will be free from pain and suffering. But it does mean that He will care and provide for His people. The Lord, even as you suffer, the Lord has not abandoned you. And so the people of God will go to Egypt, and they, but they will not remain there forever, for the Lord will also bring them back. They will experience great hardship, they will suffer. Nevertheless, God will lead the people back to the land of promise. And Jacob himself will not return alive. Verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand so close your eyes. Joseph, his beloved and long-lost son, will be with him at his deathbed. Joseph will close the old man's eyes at his death, which means, of course, that Joseph is indeed still alive. And Jacob will be reunited with him. And he will spend the rest of his days with his son. If there had been any lingering doubt concerning the story of his other sons, this was removed by the Lord's vision. However, Jacob's return to the land will be after his death, his bones will be carried back to Canaan. And so we see that Jacob then arose, he sets out for Beersheba. Now the Hebrew here expresses a quick and decisive action, not as easy to see that in English, but the, the, uh, the way that this is constructed, he's decisive, it's quick. He's, okay, he got his vision, the Lord has spoken, I'm going. He has been reassured. He will be obedient to what the Lord has told him. Notice the description of his departure with the wagons and the family. It's not provided until chapter 5. I mean, they go down to Beersheba. He offers sacrifices. He hears from the Lord. And now we see all the provisions being listed. It's almost like, well, we're going to go, but we're not yet sure. The Lord reassures him. Perhaps Jacob was given all he needed for his final decision. And here, too, we read that his sons carried him along with their little ones and their wives in the wagons which were provided by Pharaoh. So again, the narrator gives credit to Pharaoh for the generous provision of the wagons. And the use of wagons was unusual for travel. 
And so the permanence of the migration is in view. What is also implied here is that Jacob is old and weak. He is dependent on God's provision and protection. Also, you'll notice redundancies in verses 5 through 7. These highlight that it is the entirety of the household of Jacob which migrate to Egypt, all of their livestock, all of the goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan. They brought all of this, despite the fact that Pharaoh had told them that they didn't need to bring anything. They still brought all of those things. They brought all of those possessions, probably so as not to presume on the great king's hospitality. Notice also in verse 5 that it presents the sons of Israel as taking their father to Egypt. It says that they carried their father and their wives and their children. That they brought Jacob to Egypt. But then look at verses 6 and 7 and it presents Jacob as having brought his sons down to Egypt along with their whole families. Now the redundancy and differing focus suggests in a sense, both of these things are true. It's, it's both true to say that, that Jacob was brought down by his sons and also that Jacob brought his sons down. Verse 5 presents the practical reality. Jacob is old. He's in a weakened state. But verses 6 and 7 represent the social order of things. Jacob is still a patriarch. No matter how old and bent over and weakened, he is still the patriarch. He is the leader of the covenant family. He's the leader of the covenant nation. And all of his offspring, his children, his grandchildren, even some great-grandchildren, along with all of their spouses, all of their goods, all of their livestock, everything is brought down to Egypt. Nothing is left behind. And so now, here in the heart of the narrative, Moses begins to provide a list. This is the names of all those who made the trek to Egypt. That is to say, the descendants of Israel, the sons of Israel. And what this genealogy demonstrates, once again, is the fulfillment of God's promises. The promise made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, that they would have many offsprings. Here, here, here they are listed for us. Now if we recall the promise made to Abraham, the fact that the family is now relocating to Egypt may, may seem a bit disturbing. Because they were in the land of promise, and now they're leaving the land of promise. But the previous theophany answers that objection, doesn't it? The nation will sojourn in Egypt for a time, and then God will bring them back. And so the genealogy of Jacob is given, starting with the children of Leah first, and the grandchildren, then the children through her servant Zilpah, then Rachel, and then finally her servant Bilhah. Now again, notice the use of the sons of Israel in verse 8. Again, the promise of nationhood is being fulfilled in embryonic form. This genealogy gives the twelve sons of Israel and their sons, which make up the seed which is being planted in Egypt and will grow and flourish into a nation there. And so Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, we see has four sons. 
Now, his, these descendants are the same ones that are listed in Exodus chapter 6, Numbers 26, 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And each of these sons produce, produces a clan, with the most notable and infamous being the rebels, uh, Dothan and Abraham, the sons of Palu, who had joined the company of Korah in the rebellion in the wilderness, the rebellion against Moses and Aaron. You might remember they got swallowed up. The earth opened up and swallowed them up. That, th- these would be the most well-known of some of the, uh, the descendants. Uh, next we see Simeon has six sons. We see also that one of those sons was from a Canaanite woman. Each of these sons produced clans. With the exception of Ohad, his name is absent from the list in Numbers and 1 Chronicles. And there may be a couple of reasons why that's a possibility. Uh, It could be, first of all, there's no clan which bore his name, and so he's just sort of unimportant. Uh, His family may have been absorbed into another clan, but it's also worth, uh, worth pointing out that his name, Ohad's name, is absent in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. Which may mean that his name should not have been in this list to begin with. It's hard to know for sure, though. Simeon, though it can be noted, like Judah, had followed the objectionable practice of marrying a Canaanite woman. Next in verse 11, we see Levi had three sons. And these three sons make up the Levitical families of Israel who cared for the sanctuary. Gershon produced two clans. Kohath produced four. And this is the family from which Moses and Aaron came from. In fact, Kohath was Moses and Aaron's grandfather. Next we see Judah, who had five sons, three by his Canaanite wife, and two by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Well, it's noted in the text that two of the sons, Ur and Onan, died in the land of Canaan, which again reminds us of their ignoble deaths, leaving no clans. But even though they had previously died, they're still listed as a part of those who made the trek to Egypt. Shelah, the third-born son, who had been withheld from Tamar, had five sons. And then there's other sons, Perez and Zerah, are also, they also produce clans. One infamous descendant of Zerah is, is Achan. Remember Achan, he's the one who had taken some of the devoted things, the things that were devoted for destruction. He had taken them after the, the destruction of Jericho in Joshua chapter 7. And he was stoned and buried in a great heap. It seems like all the the fun examples are all the infamous ones, right? (laughs) But they're all there. You can trace the whole family lineages. Uh, Significantly, the sons of Perez are mentioned as well. Hezron and Hamuel. From Hezron came important clans. But most notably comes the line of King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Sikar, we see fathered four sons, and from them came clans. And the sons of Tola contributed warriors in the days of David. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 7, there were 22,600 mighty warriors that came from that clan. Zebulun also had three sons. They held, held clans as well. 
This section then ends in, in the summary in verse 15, identifying this group of offspring as the sons of Leah. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padam Aram, together with his, with his daughter Dinah. All, all together his sons and daughters numbered 33. 33, note, is the largest number of descendants in the genealogical list. This list includes six sons, 25 grandsons, two great-grandsons, and one daughter. Dinah, you will note, is, is one of only two daughters who are listed in the genealogy. Her mention brings to mind the difficulties which Jacob had in the land. The number works out to 33, though, if, if either Dinah is not included in the number, or Ohad is not included in the number. We can, of course, presume that there were other daughters who were born, but not included on the list, or included in the number. The next largest number of descendants come from Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah, of which Gad produced the most children, giving Jacob seven grandchildren, from whom come clans. Now, interestingly, Gad was the seventh on the list. And he produced seven sons, and the numerical value of the letters of his Hebrew name is seven. Now, that's just an interesting detail. I don't really have anything else to say about that, but it's an interesting detail. Uh, Next, Asher's lineage includes four sons, a daughter and two grandchildren. Uh, Sarah is the second daughter listed in the genealogy, and she shows up in some of the parallel passages as well. There are, again, a number of clans which come from this family line. Verse 18 gives a summary statement again. There were 16 persons born to Jacob through Zilpah. Next, we have the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now you'll notice that it's only Rachel who has the designation Jacob's wife. It's only used of her in this genealogy. And to Joseph, uh, well, so then you have Joseph of Manasseh, to jo- or to in Benjamin. To Joseph are born Manasseh and Ephraim in the land of Egypt. And they become important tribes in their own right. Benjamin has ten sons, most of whom become various clans. And the sons of Rachel, which include the sons and grandsons, come to 14. And last on the list are the sons born to Bilhah, the handmaiden of Rachel. From her were seven sons and grandsons. Dan had one. Uh, Naphtali had four sons, and clans come from him. And all we see listed 66 descendants who go down to Egypt, and 70 in all if you include Joseph and his sons. Now, we're told in verse 27 that there's a total of 70, but the Septuagint. Again, it's the Greek translation, lists 75 persons, and Stephen in Acts chapter 7 follows that number as well, says there's 75. Now we don't know why this is. We don't know the reason for this discrepancy. It may be that the translator had counted things differently, or it may be that the Hebrew text had been corrected by a later scribe. Now, not that this is unimportant, but this is rather minor, and so we can only speculate. 
But the more important point in this genealogy is not the exact number, but that the whole of the family of Jacob went down and lived together in Egypt. The whole of the family. There were none who stayed behind. There were none who said, well, you know, I'm just going to go migrate somewhere else. It was the covenant family in totality. Jacob did not leave any of his children, any of his grandchildren, any of his great-grandchildren to starve in the land. The fullness, the fullness of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are present together in Egypt. And they will sojourn for a time together. And they will be formed into families and clans and into a nation. The sons of Israel will become the nation of Israel. They will become the Israelites. And it's the power of God who will accomplish this. God will take a few people. He will take a few people, whether it's 70 or 75. You know, the number doesn't really matter that much. That's a few people who will become a nation. They will become a mighty nation. As it says in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 22, the least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. It is the Lord who accomplishes this. And so as they arrive in Egypt then, Jacob sends Judah ahead. To show him the way to Goshen. And again, Judah has become the leader among Jacob's sons. And, and the setting of Judah ahead was prudent for a number of reasons. First of all, Jacob was showing the proper honor to Pharaoh to ensure that he could indeed pinch, pitch his tent in Egypt without any trouble. But also, this alerted Joseph to the fact that Jacob was coming. This allowed then Joseph to prepare his chariot and to meet his father Israel in Goshen. Literally, it is Joseph hitched his chariot. He hitched his chariot. He got his horses together and he hitched his chariot to it. Now it's likely that he had servants who had done this, but the point being made actually is the haste. When Joseph found out his father was coming, he quickly did everything that needed to be done to get there as quickly as possible. This is a son who is anxiously racing to see his father again. Joseph was not going to wait for his father to appear before him. He would go and greet him in Goshen. And Joseph went up to Goshen, which probably, as he goes up, probably refers to the geography of the place. He went up from the Nile Valley up to the Goshen Plateau. As he did, he went to present himself before his father, Israel. The son that Jacob had believed was dead for over 20 years was now to stand before him. The son who had been sold into slavery, who had been bound as a prisoner, was by God's gracious and providential hand reunited with his father. 
Well, you notice the language of Joseph's reunion with Jacob echoes the language used of of the Theophanies. And there's also an echo of Jacob's reunion with Esau. And when Joseph appeared before his father, we see that he fell on his neck. And it says that he wept for a long time or a good while. You could imagine that kind of a scene. You know, two people who have not seen each other for decades, who have longed for each other. And the weeping, Joseph's weeping. This is an expression of affection, a strong attachment that he had for his father. Joseph had missed his father all these years. Joseph had been ripped away from him. And when uh, Jacob had sent Joseph to Shechem to check on his brothers, little did he know, little did he know that that would be the last time that he would see him for 20 years. But here was a reunion. And in this was decades of pent-up emotion. The description of Joseph's reunion with Benjamin, though similar, lacks a particular adverb in Hebrew, odi, which translates a long time or continually. You know, Joseph wept on Benjamin. Joseph wept on Jacob for a long time. to his father. This was an excessive amount of weeping. Matthew Henry, in his commentaries, put it this way, his brother Benjamin was dear, but his father Jacob must be dearer. Jacob does not seem, though, to reciprocate with equal passion. At least the text doesn't indicate that to us. Perhaps the old man had no more tears left to shed after 20 years of grief. Here, though, he is satisfied with the meeting. And so Israel says to Joseph, his son, verse 30, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Jacob had lived for years and years with grief. Then when he found out that Joseph was still alive, his whole reason to continue to live was so that he could see his son again. And now he had fulfilled that desire. And all the dreams and all of the visions from God had been realized. And so in one sense, Jacob is, I'm ready to die. Not that he desired death, but rather he's satisfied. Jacob is satisfied. He has seen his son He had at one time been afraid that his hoary head would go down to Sheol in sorrow. Now he's ready to depart in peace, having seen his son's face and knowing Joseph lived. Once the family also arrives, verse 31, Joseph tells his brothers that he's going to go to Pharaoh. He's going to let Pharaoh know that they're here. Joseph was a wise and prudent administrator. He wanted to make sure that Pharaoh knew that his family had come into the land and ensured that it is from Pharaoh that the directive would come of where they could settle. He was to inform the king of their occupation as shepherds and 
He instructed his family on what to say if they were called upon by Pharaoh. They were to tell Pharaoh that they were keepers of livestock and had been since their youth. In other words, we're not looking, we're not looking for other work. Uh, we have no aims at seeking power. Uh, we have no ambitions in Egypt. And there's no conspiracy to cover anything up. The brothers readily admitted that they were shepherds and keepers of livestock. They had a small herd of cattle and sheep. They had brought that along with them. And of course, having all that necessitated the fact that they would need a large amount of land to graze on and to water. This is particularly important since this was a rather arid land. And there was an active famine, which was probably the result of a drought. The reason, though, for strategically informing Pharaoh of the family's occupation is so that Pharaoh would more readily give them the land of Goshen. As it's explained in the text, shepherds were an abomination to Egyptians. In other words, Joseph wanted Pharaoh to say, Oh, yeah, why don't you... You know what, you guys should go to Goshen. <laughs> we don't really don't want you around us. He wanted Pharaoh to make that decision. He wanted the Egyptians themselves to segregate the Israelites away from themselves. Now it's not because the Egyptians didn't keep animals. They did. But the Egyptians found the practices of other nations to be loathsome. And so if Jacob and his family settle in Goshen, they would be away from them and no threat to Egypt. And as it turns out, this was to the benefit of Israel. This was exactly what was to happen by God's hand of providence. Israel was to be protected from Egypt in the land of Goshen. They would be able to avoid the mixing of, of mainstream Egyptian life. They would be insulated to some degree from the paganism and false religion of Egypt and they could grow and flourish in peace unmolested. Israel would be able to retain their unique identity until the time that the promises made to Abraham would be realized. But that would have to wait a couple more generations. And then, they would be brought back out from the land of Egypt. The Lord had planted His people in Egypt for a season in order to accomplish His purposes for them. He has you and I planted in this place for this season of life for His purposes as well. Now we might not always understand God's purposes. We might not always ever know what God's purposes are. This may be, this is what we would call part of God's secret will. But we can know that by His hand He is accomplishing His will. I've seen this in my own life. Perhaps you have seen this in your own life. Jacob's family endured great suffering. And the pilgrimage of this life was at many times very difficult for them. For Jacob, the tears of sorrow are transformed into tears of joy. And God will transform your tears of sorrow into tears of joy as well. Perhaps in this life, perhaps not. But assuredly, He will in the life to come in His kingdom. 
In fact, already as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a taste of those kingdom promises. Already you experience the joy of forgiveness. That you enjoy the joy of reconciliation with your Heavenly Father. Because the one who knew no sin became sin. So that we could become the righteous before God. In that sense, we live in the already but not yet. And the joy we experience is not based on circumstances. For many of us continue to suffer. Many of us continue to have sorrow upon sorrow. There are many of you who shed tears regularly. Because life can be hard, painful. And yet, our joy is found in Christ. Who wipes away every tear. Our joy is found in our Savior. These promises of God then are not just empty promises or exclusively future promises, but neither are they merely temporal in nature. If you are a Christian, if you are trusting and resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a son and an heir of the kingdom of God. You have all the rights and privileges which are afforded to afforded to to citizens and sons. You belong to the Lord. You are His. And you're in His hands. In His loving, caring hands. And so, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, rest in your Savior. Take great delight in Him. Be sure of this. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has promised by faith to forgive you, to transform you, and that work will be complete and you will be brought into the kingdom. So be encouraged and take comfort in that. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your promises. We're thankful that You have a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, that even as we've studied in Genesis, is in you know, seed form, comes to fruition, and we are part of the bearing of that great fruit. And that the fruit is continually being born. And we look forward to the day when our Savior Jesus returns again and ushers in the fullness of the kingdom. But until that day, we wait longingly with great hope. We look forward to that day when all our tears will be wiped away. But help us, O God, to take comfort and rest in Christ, that our joy may be in Him and His finished work for us. We pray this in the name of our faithful Savior and our Lord our King and our God, Jesus Christ. Amen.